This is The Sidebar for the week of June 2nd, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. So Article 5 is, has been the core of the alliance since its foundation, but ironically, uh, it was obviously uh, drafted with the Soviet threat in mind, and yet the only time it was invoked was uh, because of a terrorist attack on the United States. This week, our focus is NATO's history, mission, and budget, and our conversation with its former director of policy planning, Fabrice Potier. Fabrice Potier, nearly 70 years after it was created, can you explain the North Atlantic Treaty Organization known as NATO, why it was formed, and how? Well, the why is pretty simple. It was to uh, defend Europe against the, what was at the time of the foundation the Soviet threat. Um, the question whether it was, you know, to what extent the U.S. was ready to give its firm commitment to defending the European allies, uh, the 11, uh, actually 10 uh, European allies, because Canada is uh, uh, a founding member, but uh, of course part of North America, the extent to which the U.S. was ready to, to commit to the defense of those 10 initial European allies. So fundamentally, the core of NATO is about defending Europe against uh, a territorial threat. Of course, with time, this has evolved, especially uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union um, and the end of the Cold War. But in a way, NATO has been called on playing new roles by the, the you know, basic crisis that happened uh, throughout the 90s, especially in the Western Balkans. And then uh, also uh, following the 9-11 attacks uh, against the United States, um, in Afghanistan. So NATO had a very clear mandate uh, all throughout the Cold War, even if it was not always easy to fulfill that mandate politically. There were some real crises, uh, like when the French president de Gaulle decided to pull out all French military from the, from the alliance. Um, when the, the German chancellor launched the Ostpolitik, which was a way to engage with uh, his Russian uh, counterparts, that created also a lot of tension within the alliance. But fundamentally, until 1989, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, that mission was pretty clear uh, and simple. Uh, it then evolved into, I would say, more, more, more widespread missions, uh, much more focused on outside Europe. But interestingly, over the last few years, since uh, Russia invaded um, Ukraine, uh, NATO has had to rediscover some of its original core uh, mission, uh, which is the defense of Europe against a possible Russian threat, uh, mostly against some of the weaker uh, European allies, uh, mostly the Baltic states. So in a way, NATO has kind of come back to the future, uh, both carries on, you know, its uh, forward, uh, far away deployments like Afghanistan. Uh, it's still engaged in the Western Balkans, especially in Kosovo, but at the same time had to kind of find back uh, how to do basic deterrence against a possible threat coming from uh, Russia. You mentioned a couple of key moments in the development of NATO. I want to go back to mm. the Korean War in the 1950s, because that seemed to be 
a seminal moment that really galvanized NATO and turned it much more from a political organization into a military organization. Yes, absolutely. That that was a turning point uh, when when the U.S., which initially was uh, more reluctant to to give some full, uh, we say, military um, uh, guarantees to the Europeans, realized that it had to forge uh, a stronger military alliance with the European allies. Uh, so I think that that was a turning point indeed. But even within that, there were differences. The, the French, for example, were very preoccupied by whether the, the initial treaty, the Washington Treaty, will extend to uh, the French, what was at the time the French colonies. And that was one of the key questions during the negotiation of the Washington Treaty. Uh, the British wanted to have, in a way, a much narrower military-focused alliance. So there were already differences of views, but indeed the, the current war has kind of crystallized and made both the European and the North American allies realize that they had to give more military punch and credibility towards what was at the time mostly a political organization. U.S. President Harry S. Truman was in the White House when the NATO treaty was signed on April 4th, 1949. It's headquarters in Brussels. Why? Well, it's a long story. Uh, I think if I'm correct, the first headquarters was in London. Uh, it then moved to uh, Paris, uh, two uh, different places in Paris. Uh, one, it started in Le Trocadéro, which I think is very familiar to many American uh, listeners of, of your program, uh, and then moved to a bit more outside Paris at the edge uh, in a place called Dauphine. <clears throat> and, and until 1966, everything was more or less fine when uh, General de Gaulle started to show some, some clear differences with the U.S. policy, especially on nuclear um, issues. Uh, and basically, the goal wanted to uh, assert the French strategic autonomy and, and started to, to make noises about you know, not wanting to integrate the French nuclear deterrent, but also the French military doctrine and planning within a U.S.-led organization. Uh, so one, from one thing to another, he, he decided to pull out all French military uh, officers and, and capabilities from the alliance. And at the same time, in, in, in kind of response to that, the, the U.S. pulled out all its um, uh, troops presence in France, including also its air force. Um, and so the military headquarters was the first to move out of France from what it was then near Versailles, called, uh, a city called Roquencourt, to uh, Mons, where it is now. Uh, and I think one or two years later, the civilian headquarters, which is the, the one uh, known and the one where President Trump was, was um, hosted uh, last week by the other leaders, uh, that civilian headquarters moved to Brussels. There was a, a, a lot of discussions about where exactly, because basically the, the, the clock was ticking. There was very little time to find a headquarters fit for a military alliance. That means that has to have you know, enough space, uh, secured infrastructure. Um, so in the end, the Belgium government managed to build uh, fairly quickly uh, a kind of makeshift headquarters, which is still the current headquarters until all the staff will move, I think, at the end of this year into the new 
bright and shiny um, uh, modern headquarters. So it was, and it was never meant to be the permanent one. Um, the idea was to build uh, perfect headquarters um, uh, northern, uh, in the northern part of Brussels, but that never happened for funding reasons. So in a way, uh, NATO got stuck with a temporary headquarters, uh, and that's why when there are criticisms, including indirectly coming from President Trump about the price of the new headquarters, yes, indeed, $1 billion sounds quite a lot, um, and maybe it could be cheaper than that, but there's clearly a need for a new headquarters. I worked six years in the current one, the old one. Uh, it's basically a mix of badly built uh, building with prefab buildings, uh, and it's not fit to host uh, 28 plus many partner nations embassies, because you have to realize that the NATO headquarters is not just the staff working at NATO. It's all the diplomatic staff from all the NATO members. Plus, I would, I would think there is probably a dozen partners who also have their diplomatic uh, representation uh, offices there. So the new headquarters is going to be, uh, you know, uh, an organization headquarter plus many, many embassies hosted in one building, therefore the size. I want to come back to the funding and membership of NATO in just a moment, but another yeah. defining moment, September 11th, the attacks here in the United States, and yeah. invoking Article 5, which is what? Well, Article 5 is, is the core uh, of the Washington Treaty, which says that an attack on one or several allies uh, will be met by all the other allies, and will one ally or several will be defended by the whole alliance. Uh, so it's it's a pretty uh, elegant, simple article. Uh, however, there was a bit of an American uh, nuance during the negotiation of the Washington Treaty on this article. Uh, if you, the article, if I'm correct, reads like an attack on one or several allies would be met by uh, the alliance and all necessary means will be used. And the U.S. was quite keen on keeping options open and not making... I would say, an automatic direct commitment to use military means in case of uh, an attack on one ally. Um, so Article 5 is, has been the core of the alliance since its foundation, but ironically, uh, it was obviously uh, drafted with the Soviet threat in mind, and yet the only time it was invoked <clears throat> was uh, because of a terrorist attack on the United States. And again, interestingly, uh, it was actually not the U.S. that was pushing for NATO to, to invoke Article 5. It was actually really very much the then Secretary General, Lord Robertson, uh, who took the initiative with, of course, the U.S. Uh, permanent representative in, at NATO and other nations on the day after the 9-11 attacks to invoke Article 5. And I remember having discussed that with him. He didn't know himself when he entered the room, uh, when he wanted to have a kind of uh, an agreement between all the nations to invoke Article 5. He didn't know if he would have everybody around the table agreeing. So even though it was a very, I would say, a historic moment for the alliance and for the United States, it was not, again, a straightforward one. Um, but I think it's important and and. Everybody has made that point, especially last week during the NATO summit. It's important to remember that 
Article 5 was invoked because of an attack against the United States. And then the last tweet to that story is it was invoked, uh, but it was in a way never used as such because the deployment that uh, followed the U.S. deployment in Afghanistan was actually initially a coalition of the willing, so was outside the NATO framework, mostly because the administration, uh, the U.S. administration at the time, the Bush administration, and especially the defense secretary, uh, uh, was extremely, you know, skeptical about having to carry 28 other allies and wanted to do basically the job themselves. Uh, so that's why the initial phase of the intervention in Afghanistan was not a NATO phase, but it was a coalition of the, the willing operation enduring freedom. It then became progressively uh, a NATO uh, operation, uh, the International Security Assistance Force for Afghanistan, ISAF, um, but it only really became, I would say, a combat operation in 2006-7, when NATO took over most of the Afghan territory. So, again, Article 5 was invoked, but not necessarily uh, because Washington was driving uh, the process, but because some European allies and Secretary General believed that was a moment where Europe had to show solidarity with the U.S., but the U.S. Not, didn't necessarily seize that moment of solidarity because basically it uh, uh, launched an intervention in Afghanistan outside the NATO Article 5 framework. By the way, do you know how many people work at NATO headquarters in Brussels and its estimated operating budget? Um, I think there are um, around 1,250 civilians um, working at the headquarters to that, which is very, very small. Uh, if you compare to the European Commission, I think the European Commission has 25,000 people working. 1,250,000 wow. is, is basically more or less the, the staff for a medium-sized uh, French city uh, for the staff working in a, in a, in a city council. Um, but I, uh, to that, you have to add the staff that works in the NATO agencies, which are the kind of more specialized um, headquarters managing particular areas like the, all the IT and telecommunication systems, some capabilities like, for example, um, the, the missile defense uh, system. So you have this, also this agency with some civilians there. And then finally, uh, you also have what we call the NATO command structure, so all the military headquarters, the main one being in what we call um, SHAPE in Mons, near Brussels, uh, which is headed by a U.S. general. And then there are many other headquarters across Europe and also one in Norfolk uh, on the eastern coast of, of the United States. And I think within the military structure, you have approximately 8,500 um officers working there, but most of them are, are sent by uh, the NATO members. Uh, along those lines, then, is the Secretary General, is he the individual that oversees all of NATO operations? No, uh, and that's that's an interesting question, because the Secretary General um, is basically sometimes more secretary than the general. Uh, you know, that's a say that always... Uh, uh, is, is referred to. Um, so he, paradoxically, he's an important individual because he's the representative, the highest representative of the alliance. 
but at the same time, he has very limited powers. Uh, he doesn't even have uh, extensive budget powers. Uh, every pence or any, sorry, or, or centimes that are spent in NATO have to be approved by 28 members. Uh, he barely can move senior staff around. I think he can move less than half a dozen senior staff from one division to another. Um, so despite the fact that the role is a very symbolic one, and he also has the bully pulpit as, as an important tool, uh, that means he can use you know, public and also speeches to the North Atlantic Council to move the allies in certain direction. He doesn't have very strong executive power. And there has never been an American secretary general. Why is that? Well, because the other powerful or the even more powerful individual within the alliance is the supreme ally commander for Europe, which traditionally uh, has been um, a U.S. general who also heads the U.S. forces in Europe. So this is what you call being double-hatted. He's the EUCOM chief, but also the sacker, as we call it, uh, call him in the NATO jargon. Um, and traditionally, this is, in a way, even though there is another supreme like commander for transformation, which is now a, a French general based in Norfolk, but traditionally, the sacker, the U.S. general, is the key uh, I would say, actor on all military matters at NATO. He's the one who's going to oversee the planning. He's the one who's going to oversee the force generation. That means when you know, uh, NATO is going to call on nations to provide forces for deployment. Uh, and he's going to be the one assigning which headquarters is going to lead which operation. Like during the uh, Libya operation, for example, it was the Naples in Italy, headquarters that was uh, overseeing the operation. So the sacker is quite fundamental. It's not to say that he's more powerful, but he brings the U.S. military might with him uh, because of his double hat. So he, he, he's the commander of U.S. forces in Europe, and he also oversees the whole of the, the NATO military structure. And in terms of the funding of NATO, the president has been talking yeah. about how NATO needs to step up to the plate. There was a recent story in Politico that says actually Germany per capita pays more inside the alliance than the United States. So can you clear this up? Yeah, because we're talking about two different things. We are talk if we're talking about the NATO funding, that means the common fund, the common budget for NATO to run the organization – that's roughly two billion, um, two billion euro a year, close to two billion dollars if you want a year. Um, most of it goes for the military budget, so the money is used to run the headquarters, to run all the telecommunications and uh, IT network, which is very important when you run operations at the other side of the world, and when you want to have very secured uh, networks against cyber attacks and to run some of the capabilities like the AWACS or the C-17 that the, the Alliance and soon some um, uh, high-altitude drones that the Alliance has at, it, at its disposal. And then a small portion, around 200, um, uh, $250 million, goes for the, what you call the civil budget. So basically it's to pay the salaries of the staff, 
the buildings, to run, you know, things connected not to the military staff, but to all the civilian political activities. So it's a very, very small budget. Within that budget, this is a portion to all the members. So each member has to pay a percentage of this budget every year. And the funny thing is, actually, the U.S. is paying only, I'm putting that into, bra into um, bracket, 22% of the NATO budget. Whilst, for example, Germany is paying 15%, France around 11%, UK around 10%. So France, Germany, and UK represent 35% of the NATO budget, whilst the US, 22%. And, and basically, the story is the US, if this is, these figures are based on, on the, the GDP. Um, and but with the U.S. it is capped because the U.S. GDP is so big that the U.S. will end up paying a huge share of the NATO common funding. So in a way, the U.S. Pay, pays less than what it should, whilst, for example, Germany pays on, on a proportionate GDP level, uh, pays almost three times more than the U.S. This is for the NATO common funding. So this is the NATO budget, which is Again, very small, $2 billion, uh, a bit more than $2 billion a year, you know, to run uh, an international organization is pretty small. Um, but then you have, and this is the other side of the question, you have the defense spending. So all the money that each NATO member spends in its, for its armed forces, capabilities, and operations. And here there is indeed a very significant gap between what the U.S. spends, which is uh, close to uh, 660 um, million, uh, sorry, billion dollars a year, and what the whole of Europe spends, which is close to 250 billion a year. So there is a gap of almost, you know, two to threefold between Europe and the U.S. Now, President Trump and and but most of his predecessors, including President Obama, uh, obviously. Uh, tried very clearly to, to address that gap, which is not sustainable and not healthy. When you have one member representing more or less between 65 and 70 percent of all defense spending of an alliance, uh, it's an unhealthy balance for both, uh, imbalance for both this member, the U.S., but also for the Europeans. And I think many Europeans agree with that. But you also have to nuance that with the fact that the U.S., is the one and for the moment only global superpower. And the U.S. defense budget is not just allocated for Europe. It's actually a small portion of the U.S. defense budget. In a way, the U.S. has global commitments, and that's why it has also a very significant budget. If you take a country like France, that is one of the, the top uh, military spenders in Europe, France is I would say commitments are mostly regional. So the picture, I think, when you put it into that context, that gap doesn't look as unfair as President Trump wants to present it. And in our remaining minute, uh, with the debate over Montenegro to be a new member of NATO, can you briefly explain the process? Well, the, the process is first, you have to have the 28 uh, members of the alliance who have to agree with 
the Montenegrin, you know, a request for membership. Second, Montenegro has to go through, I would say, a military and political transformation process. It has basically to have its armed forces that are fit for working with the other NATO members' armed forces, and it has to have, you know, a level of democratic scrutiny of transparency that is required if you want to uh, join a democratic alliance. Um, and But Montenegro is a very small country. We're talking, I think, about roughly 600,000 uh, people making the population. Uh, but it's a quite strategic piece of the wider uh, eastern, uh, eastern, southeastern Europe part, and one that the Russians have been wanting to kind of gain more influence, because this is also a way for them to have access to the wider Mediterranean uh, space. So in a way, Montenegro doesn't matter much in military terms or even in population terms, but matters a great deal in symbolic and in, in a way strategic access terms. And that's why that membership was important. And that's why also agreeing on having a new member in the alliance sends a signal to the other ones like Georgia or Ukraine or possibly other ones who might be interested in joining the alliance at some point. Joining us from Spain, Fabrice Potier, thank you very much for your time and your insights. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. A pleasure. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.